You're listening to Preach the Word with David Ryu, Sermon Archive. Well, please join me in a word of prayer. Blessed Jesus, we have assembled this Lord's Day to adore you, our greatest treasure, delight, and hope. All else pales in comparison. All other earthly treasures, all other joys, all other pleasures cannot compare to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord. And yet sometimes, Lord, in our weakness, we lose sight of the heavenly and eternal perspective. We lose sight on your promises. We lose sight of your glory. We confess that sometimes we get too distracted by our worldly circumstances, our worldly desires, our worldly pursuits. And so, Lord, we humble ourselves and ask you to teach us the true contentment, whatever our circumstances. Teach us the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Should we suffer? Should we live in poverty? Should we face failing health? Should we face even death? Teach us to say, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. There are many among us today, compassionate Father, who are suffering physically, mentally, and emotionally. We ask that you remember them today. And what is more, we ask that you help them to remember the everlasting treasure to be found in Christ. For we can do all things and endure all things through Christ who gives us strength. Help us all to remember that this world is not our home, but that our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly await for Christ's return and the day of glorification when we will have new and imperishable bodies. Holy Spirit, as we now direct our attention to the preaching of your word, we ask that you would prepare the soil of our hearts to receive spiritual revelations. You promised that your word that goes forth from your mouth shall not return to you empty. Holy Spirit, illuminate your word to us and accomplish what you so desire. Convict us of sin. Open our eyes to see Christ more clearly and cause us to believe. We pray all this in the mighty name of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, today we continue in our sermon series through the Gospel of John. And our text today comes from John chapter 20, verse 30 to 31. Please open up your Bibles with me to John 20, verse 30 to 31. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus performed many other signs 
in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Amen. This was a reading of God's word. When I was a student in high school and university, I had to write a lot of those dreaded essays and papers. I'm sure which you, don't, you also don't like. And the hardest part of writing a paper or essay for me was always figuring out the thesis. I distinctly remember my teachers and professors telling me that the thesis statement was the most important. This is because the thesis statement describes the purpose for your entire paper, the reason why you're writing. And then the rest of your paper builds around your stated purpose. And John 20, 30 to 31 is exactly that. It is John's purpose statement for his gospel. These two verses tell us the goal and reason for which John wrote this very gospel. John was one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus, and John in particular was part of Jesus' inner circle, meaning he was very close to Jesus. He had followed Jesus, traveled with Jesus, walked with Jesus, ate with Jesus. Essentially, John had always been right there next to Jesus in his three years of ministry on earth. John was the first-hand eyewitness of everything that Jesus did and said. Well, then it's no wonder John can say what he says in verse 30. That Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. You see, there was a lot that Jesus did and said that didn't make it into this gospel. Because John simply could not include everything. It's not that the other wonderful things that Jesus did and said was trivial or insignificant. But it seems that John has selectively chosen to write about these specific details and events to serve an evangelistic purpose. To entice his readers to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, as we're told in verse 31. Of course, John was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and it's through this messenger that God has revealed to us everything he wants us to know, or in other words, everything we need to know. And friends, we can be sure of this today. There is more than enough contained in these 21 chapters of John to incite us to believe. 
You know, back in the days when smartphones and Google Maps didn't exist, we heavily relied on the signs or road, on the roads and highways. 100 kilometers to Toronto, 50 kilometers to Toronto, this exit for Toronto. You see, the signs on the road point us toward the right direction to get to our destination. In the same way, John has recorded for us what he calls the signs. In verse 30, all throughout his gospel, we find the signs that point us toward the truth of who Jesus really is. John's gospel is designed and arranged so that as we follow the trail of these signs, we will be led to the conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. So let's just do a quick survey of just some of these signs that we find in John's gospel. In John chapter 2, Jesus and his disciples are at a wedding in Cana, where a problem, problem is brought before Jesus. The wine has run out. A wedding celebration without wine is a disaster. Upon hearing this, Jesus commands the servants to go get six stone water jars and to fill them with water. The next thing we know, the water transforms into wine. Jesus provided wine for all the guests and in abundance. The wedding will not be ruined. It will not run out of wine. And then the narrative ends with this editorial comment by John in verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Of course, this miracle demonstrates Jesus' power over all matter and elements, thereby revealing his divinity. But more than that, the greater significance of this miracle is fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Jesus is the provider who brings joy into our life, just as wine brings joy into a wedding celebration. Moreover, Jesus is the Christ who is himself like the best wine, the superior wine, as he would establish the new covenant, which is superior to the old covenant. And later in John chapter 2, we find Jesus in Jerusalem. He goes to the temple courts, and sees that the house of God was made into a market. And so he clears out the temple, drives out the merchants, and at this, the Jews are displeased. And they confront him, asking in verse 18, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answers, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up again in three days. 
Of course, Jesus was not referring to a physical temple building, but he was referring to his own body. Jesus would be crucified and be raised to life in three days. He would replace the old physical temple where the Jews went to meet with God. But you see, Jesus is the true temple. He himself is the meeting place between God and man. Jesus himself would be the true center of all true worship. You want to meet with God and worship God? Then come to Jesus. He is the physical presence of the fullness of God. God incarnate, the Word who made His dwelling among us. In John 4, 46, we find Jesus once more in Cana. There is a royal official whose son is sick on his deathbed at a nearby town. And the officials beg Jesus to come and heal his son. And Jesus replies in verse 48, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. Jesus was addressing the the larger crowd who followed him, who adored him just for the miracles. You see, many people came to see Jesus and his miracles, just like going to a circus to be entertained. But this royal official humbles himself and persists in asking Jesus to save his son who was laying sick in a nearby town. And Jesus says in verse 50, Go, your son will live. And we're told the man believed the word that Jesus spoke and departed. You see, the distance was not a hindrance to Jesus. The boy can be 20 kilometers away, 20,000 kilometers away, but it doesn't matter. There is no spatial limitation to Jesus' power. Jesus heals and grants life to this boy by just the word of his power. And we're told in verse 54, this was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea. Galilee. Jesus is the powerful healer and great physician. In John chapter 6, a massive crowd has gathered around Jesus to witness more of his miracles. We're told 5,000 men were there. But if we include the women and also the children that traveled together with the men, It was more likely around 10,000 to 20,000 people. You know, the capacity of Scotiabank Arena, where the Raptors play, is 19,800 seats. So imagine, a full Scotiabank Arena during the NBA playoffs. This is a massive crowd we're talking about. But the problem was that these people traveled a long distance and they were growing hungry. And there was not enough food to feed every mouth. So Jesus says in verse 10, Have the people sit down. And then Jesus took some loaves and fish and multiplied it. 
then we're told that all the people ate till they were full. Not one person in that massive crowd went home hungry that day. It was a spectacular feast. And then in verse 14 we read, After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. But of course, Jesus was not just a prophet or a miracle worker. But Jesus, Jesus declares to us in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. God provides for our physical and temporary needs. But more than that, Jesus Christ himself is the bread from heaven that can truly satisfy us spiritually and everlasting. And then in John chapter 11, two sisters, Mary and Martha, sends a message to Jesus telling him that their brother Lazarus is dying. When it is reported that Lazarus has died, Jesus goes to them, and when he arrives, he declares to them in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Then Jesus instructs them to open the tomb of Lazarus. Though he had already been dead for four days, then Jesus calls out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the dead man walks out of the tomb, and the people are shocked. And in John 12, 17, we read, Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. You see, Jesus has all authority and power over life and death. But Jesus didn't say, I can resurrect people or I can give life. No, our hope is not founded upon merely a miracle of the resurrection. But our hope is founded upon a person, namely Jesus Christ himself. He is life. And there is no life apart from Him. He is the creator of life, the source of spiritual life, and the gift of new resurrected life, eternal life. You see, all in all, John's gospel is filled with breathtaking miracles and wonders that Jesus performed. But I want you to notice something really important. Notice how John doesn't refer to them as miracles, but he always refers to them as signs. The Greek word semion can mean signs or distinguishing marks. And the function of a sign or a mark 
is to point our attention to something else outside of itself. You see, John wants his readers to unpack what the miracles signify. What does it mean? Though the miracles are wonderful, the miracles in and of themselves are not the main attraction. The miracles serve a greater purpose to reveal to us the identity and majesty and glory of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the main attraction. And that's what John wants us to see. Do you see it? But the tragedy, the great tragedy we observe in Jesus' time, and even our day, is an obsession and fascination about the signs and wonders, rather than what the sign signifies and points us to. It is a great tragedy to see people who love signs more than they love Christ. Sad. It's unfortunate. What we observe in the Gospels is that the large crowds that gathered around Jesus were not really there for Jesus. Most of the people went to Jesus to get a miracle, to get a thrill. Most of the people went to Jesus to get bread. They didn't go to Jesus to get Jesus. They went to Jesus to get bread. But Jesus is not just a miracle worker and provider of bread. But He Himself is the bread of life. Why are people content with just physical bread when there is something so much better, something so much greater? And we observe this great tragedy in our day today as well. There are people, and you might know some, there are people who seek miracles more than they seek Christ. They are way more excited about miracles, about healing, about demon exorcisms, about new prophecies, way more excited than they are about Christ. There are churches who teach their people to pray and to ask for things and declare and to demand from God what you want, when you want it, without discernment and, and regard of God's will, without asking what is God's will. And oftentimes this obsession and fascination about miracles and superstition without biblical discernment can become the Trojan horse or gateway for false teachings. Without biblical discernment, people are susceptible to manipulation and mindless emotionalism where, where feeling is everything. Without biblical discernment, people can become victims of baseless promises of health and wealth in the prosperity gospel. 
There are preachers today who offer the supernatural prospect of healing from sickness and disease in a way that actually distracts people's attention away from Christ. There are preachers today who offer the supernatural prospect of success and financial blessings while omitting the biblical warnings of God's judgment to come and our need of repentance. Brothers and sisters, let me just ask you this question. Do you want Jesus for His miracles and supernatural? Or do you want Jesus for the prospect of health and wealth? Or do you want Jesus for Jesus? What is it? Suppose you're going on a road trip to Niagara Falls. You're on the highway, you're heading west, and you see a sign that says 20 kilometers to Niagara Falls. And you might get excited when you see the sign, but you're not in Niagara Falls. You have not yet reached your destination, the main attraction. Or suppose you're, you're starving and, and you see a sign on the, on the window front of a restaurant and it's a picture of a delicious Korean fried chicken. And the sign alone is enough to make you salivate and drool. But you're not satisfied. You won't be satisfied until you begin to bite into that glazed crispy piece of chicken, which is the main course. And what I'm trying to tell you today is that you can read John's Gospel. You can read about the signs and wonders. You can know these stories by heart. You can even come to love these stories. But it's possible that you can miss the main point. John's Gospel was not written so that you can be fascinated and impressed and entertained. Likewise, this sermon being preached to you now is not for you to just enjoy or laugh or to be inspired even. Rather, the ultimate purpose of John's gospel and the ultimate purpose of this sermon is to show you more clearly who Jesus Christ is. And seeing the glory and beauty and majesty and infinite value and worth of Jesus Christ should inevitably lead you to believe and to keep on believing. I hope it's clear to you by now that this is my goal in every sermon that I preach here in this church. Dear friends, I implore you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And by believing, you may have life in His name. This is the free and gracious offer of eternal life and a restored relationship with God. The offer is not a miracle, 
The offer is not a promise of health and wealth in this life. You know, those things would be too underwhelming. Because truth be told, those thousands of people who were fed bread and fish that day became hungry again. They had to look for the next meal. And those people who Jesus healed probably fell sick again. Lazarus, who Jesus rose to life, grew old and died again, went back into the tomb. But the offer that is available to you today is not what God can give you or what God can do for you in this life on earth. But the offer is God Himself in Jesus Christ, which is far better and greater. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And if you know yourself to be a Christian, dear brothers and sisters, and you already believe, well then make sure you are continuing to believe. For John writes, by believing, you may have life in his name. John is not talking about an initial kind of faith that is hot and passionate at first and then fades away and grows cold. But when John says believing, he's talking about an initial and continual and enduring faith. Is that your faith? When we talk about genuine belief and authentic faith, there are three elements that are required. Ask yourself if your faith meets these three requirements, okay? Number one, knowledge. The intellectual content of what you believe. You must know and comprehend that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, who is the promised Savior of the Old Testament. He is the Son of God, God in flesh, who was crucified as the atoning sacrifice for sinners and then rose again to life on the third day, conquering sin and death. Do you know this? The second requirement of faith is this, assent, which is the conviction and agreement that the content of what you know is true. Knowledge is not enough. But you must believe and agree that what the scriptures teach concerning Jesus Christ are factually true. And then the third requirement is this, is trust. The personal dependence upon Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins and salvation. Faith, faith cannot remain an intellectual enterprise because even the demons know and believe the truth. 
When Jesus confronts a demon in Mark chapter 1, verse 21, the demon cries out and says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. A demon said that. A demon knows it to be true. And so it's not sufficient to just know the truth about God. It's not enough. But you must trust in Christ as your Savior for salvation. And you must also surrender to Christ as your Lord. As your Lord. True saving faith entails total submission to God as your ultimate authority. You cannot accept Him as your Savior, but then reject Him as your Lord, and then go on to live however you please. It's not how it works. That's not true faith. And it's because I love you, it's because I care about you, that I must exhort you, examine yourself. Examine yourself. Is Jesus Christ really your Savior and your Lord, your King? I'm not trying to be intense or to be harsh. I'm just trying to be biblical. It'd be so much easier for me to tell you that you're safe because you believed in Jesus at one point in your, in your life. But I'm telling you that even the demons believe and, and, and know who Jesus really is. There are countless people who are deceived in thinking they are saved, but they are on the way to hell. They want Jesus to be their Savior, but not really their Lord. You know, you, you can call Jesus your Lord all you want, but is He really your Lord? Have you surrendered to His Lordship? Listen to Jesus' warning in Matthew 7, 21. Not every one of you who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the ones who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name drive out demons, in your name perform miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. You see, it doesn't matter if you think you know Jesus to be your Savior and Lord. Because apparently, you can prophesy, you can drive out demons, you can perform miracles, signs, wonders. And yet you can deceive yourself into thinking you're saved. Brothers and sisters, true saving faith will be evidenced by a growing love for God and a growing love for the things that God loves. True saving faith will, will be evidenced by a growing hatred of sin and a growing hatred of the, of the things that God hates. True saving faith will result in a changed life that bears good fruit, 
Not a perfect life. I'm not asking you to have a perfect life. I'm not perfect. What I'm talking about is a life of continual repentance. Turning away from sin. Turning to Christ. And so, beloved church, let us come to Jesus. For Jesus. Not just for the things that He can give us or do for us, but come to Jesus for for Jesus. And let us believe, and if you do believe, let us keep on believing. Believe in Jesus, who is the Messiah, the Son of God. And do do this with all authenticity and zeal. Submit to His Lordship, Trust Him, depend on Him as your Savior. And let us thank and glorify our Savior and Lord for the eternal life we have in His name. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for this precious gift of your Son. Lord, you want to give us something far better than the riches and pleasures of this world. You provide us with clothes on our back and food on our table. You provide us with everything. But ultimately, you want to offer us yourself, a restored relationship with you, an everlasting life. Lord, the prospect of of health and wealth in this lifetime is so underwhelming. Lord, you provide us with something so much better. And so help us to receive this gift by faith alone. Help us to receive this gift and to trust in you, Jesus, as our Savior, but not just our Savior. You are our Lord. You are the Lord of the universe. If we are Christians today, our lives doesn't doesn't belong to ourselves. Our life belongs to you. Help us to surrender to your Lordship. You are our authority. And so, Lord, help us to conform our lives to your word and your will. We glorify you, we praise you, we honor you, we thank you for this life you give us, life eternal. We thank you, pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.